Welcome to Being the Dot. I'm your host, Dr. Stacy. Each week, we invite a guest to discuss different parts of Black life and thriving in white spaces. Today's topic, the church. The Black church has played an important historical role in the lives of African Americans. It is a place where we rest our weary souls and often a catalyst for social justice. Martin Luther King once said that 11 a.m. on Sunday mornings was the most segregated hour in the U.S. But that's not the case anymore. In 2016, a study was done on churches and the data indicated at least two-thirds of the people in predominantly white churches and at least two-thirds of the people who are worshiping in predominantly white churches are worshiping with at least one black member. Our guest today is a testament to the statistic. Dr. Christina Edmondson, blessed by an array of academic, professional, and lived experiences, Dr. Edmondson is committed to bringing diverse people together to promote personal and team flourishing. Dr. Edmondson holds a PhD in counseling psychology from Tennessee State University, a MS degree from the University of Rochester in family therapy, and a bachelor's degree in sociology from the home by the sea, Hampton University. Most recently, Dr. Edmondson served as the Dean of Intercultural Student Development at Calvin College. The Intercultural Student Development Center is committed to inspiring, challenging, and equipping domestic and international students to engage in meaningful ways and intentional intercultural interactions within a global society. Additional, Dr. Edmondson is a certified cultural intelligence facilitator, public speaker, and mental health therapist. She is often contacted by churches to consult with both diversity and mental health issues. Her writing has been seen and referenced in a variety of outlets, including Essence.com, YourBlackWorld.com, and Gospel Today magazine. And she is one of the co-hosts of the wildly popular, and I'm going to try not to fangirl too much, Truth's Table podcast. Daughters, please welcome my guest daughter today, Dr. Christina Edmondson. Applause and a round. <laughs> Thank you, Dr. Stacey. Thank you so much for being here. I'm just tickled pink um, by the opportunity to have um, to have an opportunity to talk about your journey and for me and for our listeners to learn from your wisdom. So let's get right to it. So Tell me a little bit about yourself, particularly your church slash ministry trajectory or your journey. Sure, sure. I describe myself as a, as a daughter and granddaughter of the Black church tradition. And I, I say that knowing that the Black church is not a monolith. I mean, there's a, a fair amount of diversity within the American, African-American uh, Christian tradition. Um and yet I do think that there are some, some common themes that are um, a part of those different traditions, particularly those that are really rooted in um, uh, kind of early uh, enslavement of Africans. Um, and so, so that's, I consider myself to be very much so a daughter, granddaughter of those traditions. My grandparents, my parents, um, very active in 
what we, we would have called church, but I guess from a sociological standpoint, black church um, environment and experience. Um, so I was the, my pastor um, to describe him now, the pastor that um, when as I was growing up, the one who baptized me and whose sermons I would hear from week to week, um, lived within you know kind of the black theological scholarship tradition. Um, he held two doctorate degrees. This was not, I mean, at the time it wasn't made like a really big deal of that, but it, but in retrospect, um, there was a high honor given from pulpit ministry towards academic attainment. So I can remember multiple black women in my church who had uh, EDDs or PhDs, and they were referred by referred to by academic title from the pulpit. So, um, so Dr. Carter, Dr. Adams, and um, it's, and I didn't realize that that was uh, would be odd in other circles. Um, I think that my pastor at the time, Dr. Harold A. Carter, the late Dr. Harold A. Carter, I think was planting seeds and being pretty strategic, saying those things before audiences that had a, a high number of, of black kids in them, right, from in Baltimore. And so I'm grateful for that intervention. I recognize that there are other cultural contexts that would find that kind of um, ostentatious, and um, they, they would they would they would see it as ego tripping. And but actually, it was an intervention, and it was an exposure. And I'm, I'm incredibly grateful um, for just that simple intervention of that state those statements from the pulpit ministry. Um, and so he, um, the late Dr. Carter, uh, was mentored by Martin Luther King Jr. when he was um, an undergraduate student in the South. Um, and he lived in this, this interesting place, at, at least as I understand it now, as someone who's outside of that, that ministry at the moment, but looking back on what I observed from him, uh, he lived at an interesting place where he um, would be tra traveling the world for like evangelistic revivals. He would help to co-sponsor like Billy Graham revivals. I remember when Billy Graham came to the city of Baltimore. At this point, the words evangelical would not be something that anyone and the black church uh, experience that I was a part of would ever use to describe themselves, but uh, sociologically speaking, that would be that would be the group. Um, and at the same time, he had uh, pretty strong connections to um, black social activists. So I remember Jesse Jackson speaking at our church. Um, I remember um, I remember hearing Vashti McKenzie, the first African American female bishop of the AME Church, speaking there. I remember uh, Bernice King when she was quite young, speaking at our church as well. Um, and so um, this, this is just my early development. It wasn't until I left for college that I left that kind of traditional, what I'm calling in air quotes, traditional black Baptist, middle-class, um, soulful high church is, is the way I would think of it, experience. And it was a mega church um, uh, at, at that point. And I uh, went to college and got to experience, uh, I think, a greater breadth of Black church traditions, particularly non-denominational, Pentecostal, um, Methodist, et cetera. And I think that was great. It was an opportunity for me to evaluate my own faith system and beliefs. Um, and I could see some of the, the overlap in themes and I could see some of the striking differences too, right? So, um, so, so my faith really became my own. It, uh, I was captured by, uh, I think, God's saving grace and love uh, during my college years. And so the seeds of the gospel have been planted quite intentionally um, in my early church experiences, but um, my faith becoming my own became a reality as I matriculated through college. And certainly the, the crises, the challenges, the development of college is a great time to hold up a mirror to who you're becoming. <laughs> and um, it, it's when I really began to claim 
the faith for myself. And so um, and by the time I graduated, um, I had dated for the most part all throughout college, my, my husband, who I'm um, married to now, thanks be to God. So he was studying, uh, he was studying physics, astrophysics at Hampton is where we both attended uh, undergrad. And I was studying sociology, emphasis in race, class and gender. And um, during that time, he felt a particular call to gospel ministry. And I think I had always felt, um, I, I guess I could say a call, but but yeah, a sense of uh, vocational connection to the local church. I've always, despite, you know, church hurt, church drama, I still see like the power and the beauty of what the local church is supposed to be. And I'd always see myself being a servant of the church in some way, shape or form. Um, and so uh, when we left under, undergrad um, and we eventually went to graduate school together in upstate New York, there we were still in um, the Black church experience, Black church tradition to some extent, but then eventually actually moved into a uh, predominantly African congregation, African Pentecostal congregation. And I think in that space, um, whereas in my early childhood, I learned about how the gospel has clear uh, people and social implications. Um, it was in the African church experience that I learned about really uh, the sacrifices tied to the gospel um, through the, the fellow congregants that were there. Uh, I think it was the first time in my life having left the black kind of upper middle class church context. Um, it was within the predominantly African church Pentecostal context that I was around believers who were working sun up, sun down, sending money back to their home country um, for their families, their entire families that were there. Um, it was in that context that I learned about how we, you know, had to rent space and how people were mistreating um, the leadership of that church, uh, no doubt because of xenophobia um, and racism, over overcharging them for the space that they were using. Um, so I got to see and understand my own American privilege, even as a black woman. Um, in those spaces. Um, and I just also learned about just, just the importance and the, the beauty of the fact that if Christianity is a real religion and Jesus is more than a tribal God or a tribal deity, then Jesus has to be the God of, of every tribe, nation, and tongue. And so being around people representing a dozen different nations on the continent of Africa and in the Caribbean, it was just uh, transformative. It was so helpful for me. And it also taught me patience. I mean, I think about Black church culture. I think about how we can spend a long time in a service. People, people joke about the differences between time. So monochronic, kind of short, concise time and polychronic kind of um, time that's more fluid. Um, and, and, and honestly, um, in, that, in that African context, I realized just how Western um, and how time conscious mm -hmm. I am, even though I'm a child of the Black church, I was like, whoa. We did mm -hmm. for a long time. <laughs> right? Well, well, and, and part of it is, so we grew up in a very similar situation as far as our um, our faith communities in um, Black Baptist High Church in the middle of Philadelphia, West Philadelphia. Um, so my pastor was William J. Shaw. And mm -hmm. uh, I bet you these two knew each other. Yes. I can't imagine they didn't. <laughs> um, and doctor, everybody who was a doctor was a doctor from the pulpit. And in fact, my mentor is a counseling psychologist yes. who worked in the counseling center at University of Penn. It made it, it was an intervention. I had not conceptualized it that way before. It wasn't. So, so you yeah. got out of graduate school. You got out of your master's program, I should say. 
and then um, you moved to Nashville. But at some point, your husband, it sounds like, moved into ministry, and and that ministry was not it's necessarily in uh, a mostly African American community, yeah, mm-hmm. or black for that matter as well. Yeah, it wasn't. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, he went. So he went to um, he went to a series of different uh, divinity schools. So Colgate, Rochester Divinity, which is has an affiliation with Dr. King, it's in upstate New York. He also he finishes his MDiv at Vanderbilt, so in Nashville, and then he eventually uh, did a doctoral work um, in Michigan. And all the while, I was I was kind of doing some parallel degree um, attainment as well in my field of emphasis, which is in psychology, sure. counseling, psych, family systems, uh, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, and it. You know, we both are. Um, there are some people who leave. I think the Black Church context because, um, I mean, there are all kinds of reasons. Some of it is just flat out internalized racism. Sure. Um, some of it is legitimate uh, uh, racial. Uh, some of it is legitimate church hurt and trauma. Um, some of it is, you know, just a, a change um, for people in terms of what they believe. Their their particular uh, now convictions or doctrinal convictions have shifted. Um, but I think for us, uh, we, you know, even today, you know, we are pretty, pretty passionate advocates of the black church. We think of the black church as an embodied, um, an embodied testament against white supremacy, that, it, that the very uh, existence of the black church is a testament against white supremacy and white dominance. Um, it's a living and breathing confessional statement. Um, saying that Black people have intrinsic dignity and um, are loved by God and kept by God. And so we, neither one of us are are from the, I guess, the camp that's like, the Black church is not high-minded enough, or I, or I don't feel like this is substantive enough, or, um, yeah, and, and I've heard these statements in many places, and I think some of that, maybe it's because people have had some legitimate, difficult situations, but I think because of uh, my context, I never look down on, um, on the black church, I was like, I was like, she is my mother, <laughs> and and I and I, I'm I'm probably about as defensive of the black church as I am of of my mama, Miss Brenda. <laughs> they're, they're they're almost one and the same to me. They're very similar, actually. I, I like that. Um, so we yeah we found ourselves yeah we found ourselves in these predominantly white church spaces after leaving the African context, uh, primarily because they were some of the spaces where my husband was given opportunities. Um, to do some of his theological work and theological inquiry, and that, and I think, um, and I also, and I also, I would add this too. I think that every community culturally has its its litmus litmus test for inclusion and litmus test to kind of get in. And the tradition that we were raised in was was very um, hierarchical, both implicitly and explicitly. And there definitely was a strong like family lineage mm, <laughs> mm-hmm. to it. So it was like my granddaddy was a preacher, my great granddaddy was a preacher, my you know, my great great granddaddy was a slave exhorter. I mean, like it's a long, <laughs> it's a long lineage. And um and my and my spouse actually was the first first pastor that he knows of and preacher within his own family context. And so that brought him into, I think, some of the black church spaces. Um not as easily accepted or not as easily valued for lack of a better term. So, um, and that's not to say that white churches still value him more per se, but I think, um, again, there's just different litmus tests, I think, to get into different spaces. I think people in my generation, Generation X, um, what they did is they bypassed that primarily through like non-denominational churches. And um, mm-hmm. they, 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 I think they've, I think they've bypassed some of those uh, gatekeeping cultural um 
uh, you know, uh, elements that we have there. Um, and, and but I think, you know, convictionally, we are kind of what we call confessional Christians. We believe in kind of interconnected churches with a high level of accountability. Mm -hmm. And so that that took that um, non-denominational option off the table for Mm -hmm. us. Um, While, you know, I respect and love part of those traditions, for us, it was just really important to be like, now, who who do I tell on YouTube? Like who, and who do I tell them? <laughs> like, I, I need to know a system of, of accountability. Sure, sure. <laughs> so that, so that's ultimately how we ended up in those, in, in spaces that are predominantly white because of the d- denominational um, connectivity and the opportunities um, to share. So, so can you tell, tell the listeners about when you were transitioning out of, predominantly black churches and transitioning into predominantly white churches, what were some of your first thoughts or uh, musings and even questions around that? Yeah. Yeah. So I think because of the nature of the work that I do, I do a fair amount of, I do, you know, a fair amount of intercultural development and anti-racism work over uh, more than 10 years. And, um, I think there's a part of me that allows me to go into a space and explore it as an explorer, uh, which means I probably initially have um, thicker Teflon to some of the experiences that like microaggressions, all those pieces um, that are legitimate and painful and exhausting. Um, but I think because I'm a, kind of a kind of an explorer, like intellectually, I'm like, oh, isn't that fascinating? Look at how the white people do this. Hmm, interesting. <laughs> you know, I, I, there's a part of me that can that can do that and still say like that's out of order and that's sinful and, and you know and that needs to stop <laughs> or that's a lawsuit right there. <laughs> right. Um, right. And so, um, so I think I think that's a, a piece of what um you know initially happened is that kind of exploration piece i did not grow up so i grew up in baltimore uh, so not far from philadelphia and i grew up in a really really black context i mean i was i feel like i can remember the white people that i knew (laughs) because there were so few and they stood out to me So I grew up in a I grew up in a black world, and, I, and and when I tell and I have friends who had the very opposite experience. I mean, like they went all the way to college without having a black teacher, and um, you know I feel like I I always was around black educators, black a black mayor, um, black superintendents, you know, um, and I was around poor black people and wealthy black people, and uh, you know black people that you know there was a great deal of diversity amongst all things black. Um, but I didn't have a lot of lived experience with doing life with white people. Although at that point, when I moved into these churches, I, I think I had a decent undergirding of sociological understanding of whiteness in America, of, of racialization, racial caste system, of oppression. So I, I didn't like, um, there are some people who find themselves in these spaces and then they're, they're traumatized by them. And then they go into like this journey of their own racial discovery and then their understanding of racism. Like I walked in like, oh, I know that's racist. <laughs> like I, I walked in and having some, some bearing on those things. Um, right. And uh, for the good and bad of it, I, I think that may have um, allowed me to have more of a professor or intellectual uh, guard up in order to persist in those spaces at times. So, so that's interesting because our stories are, are so different. And so when I left uh, 
So maybe I went to Penn State for graduate school and belonged to a more Pentecostal, very black and black, black mm-hmm. church, right? Um, amen. <laughs> amen. And, and, um, and then I went to Gainesville to internship at University of Florida. And so, you know, the first thing you do, if you're a good church girl, one of the first things you do, you find your good hairdresser, right? And then you find Amen. a church. <laughs> Amen. Nah. And then you find a church. And so I started the process simultaneously to find both. And um, and I wasn't, I was striking out. And I was, you know, Lord help me. You know, maybe I'm not seeking you enough with this. And I had left this church service and I went to um, like a barbecue joint. And outside the barbecue joint was a man mm-hmm. that said the rock. And I said, Lord, mm-hmm. and the Holy Spirit said very clearly, that's your church. Mm-hmm. And the first thing I remember was like, Lord, please don't let it be a white church. Please, God. <laughs> I prayed all week, girl. I looked them up and I went to church. It was show no predominantly white. <laughs> but I love those people. And uh, and that was really my first kind of entrance into um, into predominantly white churches. And then the healing bomb for that was that I ended up at a culture church, uh, which, of course, is the direct yeah. opposite. But it sounds, yeah, but it sounds like you were able to lean into it pretty easily. Well, and I wouldn't say easily. I, I would say that it definitely is a psychological defense mechanism. Intell- intellectualization is a defense mechanism. And I think part of... Of course. Yeah, and so I think part of my... Um, part of my commitment to truth, truth telling, or I hope I pray that it's truthful about um, kind of the, 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 the wickedness and how deeply ingrained racism is within the church um, is a survival method for me. You know, um, the truth, capital T truth, Jesus will set you free. But I also believe that smaller truths have a freeing, uh, a freeing effect on us as well. And so I think to be, there are people who are in the spaces and they're, they're kind of, um, they're kind of muzzled, self-muzzled or systemically muzzled in the spaces. And I tend to go on record a lot. So there's, there's, so, so I'm not going to be, I'm not going to be in a predominantly white space. The white people know how I feel. <laughs> I mean, they should like, I'm not, I'm right. There you go. That's good. And that, that's, but you know what though? But you know what? That's a good that's a good uh, strategy around coping and surviving and thriving is that to not allow yourself to be silenced, even though this is a predominantly white context and everybody's supposed to be playing nice because, you know, Jesus and everything. Right. Right. And and yeah. And I, and I think everybody is supposed to be to be kind. But that kindness, you right. know, is expressed. Right. Through honesty and accountability, <laughs> right? And so, um, right. And, and, and I don't fundamentally believe that. Uh, I, so, I, so I do fundamentally believe that that uh, for Christians actually need each other. Like I, um, and there are things that um, different traditions have to off- offer other traditions, and different ethnic groups and uh, have to offer other people. And I think. Um, I think it's important for us to to bear with that. At the same time, um, you know, it's an affront to the gospel the way in which white supremacy has run run rampant uh, in the American tr- Christian mm-hmm. tradition. I mean, it is 
Um, it's it really is a, a, a blood cancer. I mean, it's it's not like a cancer that's just like a lump on a spot. No, it's like in the blood, um, right. and so Indeed. it has it has to be it has to be dealt with um, with a, with the same level of, of respect and appreciation that should uh, that shows the severity of how bad it is. And I think when people endure in silence or um, are avoidant altogether, then um, we allow that sinfulness to fester. And so with that being said, I don't think this is everybody's mission. This is definitely not everybody's calling. This is not, this is, matter of fact, this is not what I would recommend for most Amen. I do believe that the vast majority of people, and, and I don't believe I have a kind of a savior complex. I actually don't think I can really help white people. Um, I, think, <laughs> I think that um, I can tell the truth wherever I have to, happen to be. Um, but ultimately, the work of laying down, um, you know, internalized superiority and uh, the heresy of white supremacy, that's that's a Holy Spirit work. Um, and but it does have to be Amen. preached against. It has, it has to be called out as wrong. Amen. And I think that often what is missing is that people are just, you know, there's so many white churches where, you know, I believe, honestly, that the average white church in America right now uh their, their, their pastor has never had a sermon where they've mentioned racism. And that is just absolutely outrageous. We know that white Christians hold the most deeply embedded racist views in the country. White evangelical Christians do. And to the fact that there are white churches right now where there has never been a mention of racism, <laughs> I, you know, but yet you talk about every other sin that's outside of your church doors. Well, yeah. that that ain't yeah. and and and, again, um, and I and I clearly we can critique every church tradition because all of them struggle with sin. But you know, growing up in a black church tradition, uh, people had no problem naming all kinds of sins, making people feel real uncomfortable right. <laughs> in their seat. You know, right. um, and I mean, you know, just, you know, get mad if you want to get mad. I'm walking down your street. I'm stepping on your toes. I mean, that that was kind of the the culture, um, and I I have found a very different. Um, kind of placating with the sins that are actually in the house uh, in predominantly white churches. It feels a little bit different, certainly than the African church traditions that I was a part of and the African-American ones as well. Oh, I can only imagine. Yeah. So what what would you say are the joys and challenges of being a part of a multi-ethnic church, both as a member and even maybe as a leader? So I would say that, you know, I would say that multi-ethnic churches are actually fairly um, well, if ethnicity means European ethnicity, there are, there are many. <laughs> but but, but the, the issue is that we're in we're in a racialized context. And so um, to quote Dr. Corey Edwards, uh, you know, mm-hmm. she would talk about she emphasizes the work of the multiracial church and she's kind of naming the thing that it is. And so um, race mm-hmm. uh, has a clear function and the function of race is racism and racialization. Um, this kind of categories and uh, the way people are segmented so that they can be uh, so they can be assigned particular values uh, for resource allocation and resource denial. Mm-hmm. And um, I think talking about the church um, and, and, and describing it as multiracial, I think she's wise to do that because it forces us to deal with the embedded caste system that we have uh, that we have in the church and that we justify morally within the society. So. Um, I would say that the, the the strengths are we can better see our own culture and our own identity when it's in contrast or when it's in conversation with something outside of ourselves. So um, I grew up as a 
for an incredibly mm-hmm. black context, which I'm immensely grateful for. I get more grateful for it every year, <laughs> immensely grateful for. And yet it has been in settings with people, with, uh, with people who are Korean or people who are Southeast Asian, people who are um, um, uh, from African nations, people who are European or identify as white, um, that I have better understood myself as a black woman because the, it's, it's causing me to think about um, my own cultural shaping in a way that's not really challenged in my all black context. So, so I'm grateful for that. With that being said, I don't think that that is what you endure all the time. I do think there is a, a, a place for affinity groups um, for, you know, all black spaces. Um, it's more than reasonable. It's a, it's a, um, it's a health practice. It's a health need um, that we ought to be in spaces where there are, where it's easy to communicate, <laughs> where you get each other's inside jokes. Um, and, and I think, I think it's necessary, right. you know, that from being in higher ed for, for black academics, it's, it's a must. We have to be in spaces where uh, we, we, we share these uh, cultural, uh, uh, you know, underpinnings. So all of that to say, um, the blessing is kind of self-reflection and to see the, the gospel at work through different types of people um, and to be able to see what is, um, yeah, what's cultural, what's biblical, um, you know, what's an idol. And I think being in culturally diverse spaces uh, helps us to see those things uh, more clearly, more readily, and sometimes more painfully. Um, there are lots of, I think, consequences and negatives, right? Um, because racial stratification is really designed to uh, favor some and to disenfranchise others, whether people are consciously aware of that or not, which means that in those systems where it's multiracial and you have white supremacy, which is a function of, of, of racism, um, you're whenever there is progress, you're going to experience regress um, and you'll experience pushback. Um, I think of that both in the spiritual context as a principality and a sin, but I also think of that sociologically, right? And look at the patterns of the United mm. States history and see the dance that I refer to as the dance of progress and regress, right? And so that happens in the church on a smaller level, the local church level, mm-hmm. um, where there can be an advancement or a, a moment of awareness or a breakthrough, and then you can see a regression happen as well. So that becomes incredibly disappointing. Uh, disappointing. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it, it also reminds me that it is legitimately a fight. So it's a space that is going to be exhausting for many people. And again, uh, we, we as African-Americans mm-hmm. still desperately need, um, and must value the black church in America. So it's an interesting time. So I want to share it with our viewers that this interview, um, listeners, that this interview was scheduled prior to the civil unrest and the current kind of civil rights yeah, movement right. that we find ourselves in, right? Um, I'd like to say that I planned it this way, I predicted it would be so, but <laughs> just serendipity. <laughs> so I, I guess, I, I think the the, um, the multiracial church finds itself in an interesting place as a microcosm for the larger context that we're living with currently in America. And so that, you know, Ibrahim Kendi talks mm-hmm. about the more anti-racism efforts happen, the more anti-Black racism events happen. Sure. Um, sure. And, and then you have the people who have had an awakening 
that oh wow racism exists right and um and and their wokeness it, they have their own internal revolution with everybody who will listen and um and then the folks in the middle and i i would venture to say that in a multi-racial church that the same would be true and so I'm wondering, I, mean, I think the good thing about having you as our guest daughter today is that you are able to offer both your experiential uh, pieces of how to navigate this, but also your expert um, knowledge as someone who mm-hmm. helps churches manage these kinds of issues. And so I'm wondering if you might be able to just kind of share a little bit about uh, what you have noticed um, in your own experience since since Mm-hmm. the murder and the and the civil unrest um of George Floyd mm-hmm. and um how you might cope with that as a as a body of believers. Yeah, no that's a great question. And you're right, Dr. Stacy, we did not this this we we uh, coordinated this long before we knew what was going to going to happen, but these things certainly do come in waves. Um and they're and, and they're actually always there kind of out, outside of our purview or our eye view, which is an expression of privilege, right? But there are these uh these loss, this loss of life, this um, the violence of oppression, is always with us, right? And so these these particular incidences came to light in in ways that were so undeniable because of video footage, um, and because of you know media advocacy. And so it's, I'm grateful um, for that. Um, so I think that yeah, it, it's it's a it's a difficult time I think for people who are in those spaces. It's similar to um, you know, the election of Donald Trump, quite frankly, which was a watershed moment. It was, I would also describe it as a cultural trauma um, for many people. And um, and it became incredibly revealing. Yeah, it, it became incredibly revealing. There were a number of people, at least reportedly, um, from, from journalism um, that left people of color who left predominantly white churches. There were white people who left evangelical traditions, kind of the, kind of the, yeah, the millennial state evangelical, ex-evangelicals now because of um, the election of Donald Trump. So um, I, I do, I do think this, these events, these moments serve as a, a mirror and it's like, who are we really, you know, what's really going on here. And um Mm-hmm. I think so. It's interesting what what we've been seeing in the research so far is that actually there's been an increase in um, the affirmation amongst white evangelicals that police brutality and that policing is a problem. Now this has not <laughs> this has not happened before, um, and typically white evangelicals, conservative evangelicals, people identify that way anyway. I mean, there are many people who say they're evangelical and they don't check the theological boxes. So that's how we know that there's a there's a theological element to this, and there's certainly uh-huh. a deeply embedded social political element to evangelicalism. And right. um, but the people. Sociologically, and there's tons of overlap. They ultimately, oftentimes, are the same people. Um, the the um, social political evangelicals are um, we're we're seeing more affirmation of the reality of of expressions of systemic racism, which that's the group that is most likely, hands down, to deny it. Now, amongst secular whites, are more likely to believe that racism is real than Christian whites. Mm-hmm. Um, so Christianity, the way that it is it is practiced and used in America, um, is one of the primary agents 
which and it should not be this way because I would argue that the religion is inherently anti-racist. Um, the, the the true religion is, but <laughs> but this particular brand in in America actually um, is one of the ways in which people maintain and secure a sense of piety in the midst of being quite racist. So I, I theorize that one of the reasons why there's been movement about uh, around George Floyd, particularly for that group of white evangelical, is two reasons. Uh, one is because people can't physically be in church. And I do believe, and I, again, I want to give a disclaimer. I love the church. I love the local church. I'm looking forward to the day when, when all of us can return. <laughs> But I do believe, sociologically speaking, that the church serves as an incubation uh, location for white evangelicals in order to secure their sense of religious piety while resisting social progress, while resisting dismantling injustice. Um, It has served um, that function for hundreds of years in this country. Um, And... and I, if someone doesn't agree with what I'm saying, I'd be happy to show you many examples, <laughs> many examples throughout history <laughs> and presently. Um, the the white engagement of this, I think, for people of color who are engaged, they they are long past tired. We are long past tired, and I think that um, because there is no national leadership that can that is, I mean, we've always struggled with national leadership that that was not thinking about what was in the best interest of people of color. But I think um, the progress regress of an Obama to Trump administration was traumatizing. It is traumatizing. Um, and I think people felt like something's going to change. There's no way we can ask the government to do it. They can't even impeach this guy. It's going to have to be us. And it's going to be us using all the different methodologies of protest and activism um, that people can pull together to pull. So that's why, and, and, and this is all in the midst of COVID-19. So we don't have the same ways in which we numb ourselves and medicate ourselves and avoid issues, um, particularly those of us who are privileged in some way. We just kind of pretend that our middle classness will shield us. Um, and so a lot of that we can't do. And so we have to, we're feeling it. We're, we're feeling the pain more deeply. And I think it's caused what the, this unrest that we see. So... So I, um, as I had mentioned before, I am a fan of Truth Table podcast and um, as of some of my friends. So last night, as I was prepping for our time together, I sent a text out to a couple of people and said, all right, I'm talking to her tomorrow, y'all. Um, what do you think I should ask? What do you want me to ask her? And so I want to ask you. Um, so I, I sourced the questions, if you will. Um, I, I had a question from one of my um Friend, yes, yes. To said, um, it's something like this. They want you to talk some about navigating the space between loving a brother and sister in Christ when they choose not to listen to your hurt or grieve with you. And I think <clears throat> I have a, a couple friends right now that are in multi-ethnic churches, and this, including my own, myself, this has been the experience of Oh, wait, I thought we was brother and sister. You, oh, you don't, oh, whoa. And not, you surprised that people are carry racism in their heart. Not that, but there's a jolting, Dr. Edmondson, um, that's like, whoa. Um, and not only you're not going to, you're not going to pay attention, but you're going to kind of like stand up and then turn your back. Yeah, so that is that's terrible, and that that's re-traumatizing. Um, so you know, um, Sheila Wise Rowe, uh, I would 
certainly recommend her works to your listeners. Um, I just chatted with Sheila just the other day, and Sheila has a book on um, racial trauma. And I think that I think we have to call it what it is. So uh, my academic training in counseling psych was focused on trauma, sexual trauma, family family systems trauma, et cetera, and um, military combat trauma. And one of the things that makes trauma so um, so persistent, so ingrained, and we even know this particularly in cases with children for children who have been traumatized in some way, is uh, the denial of the trauma. The denial of the trauma makes it so much more worse. Um, as a matter of fact, the trajectory of treatment for children, there is one adult, one trusted adult who affirms, who believes them, who supports them, is like, I, I believe you, um, is so different from the child who has been told, now hush up, stop telling those stories about such and such, right? And so in a very similar way, the, the social trauma that people experience because of uh, social stratification because of racism, sexism, et cetera. Um, when it is denied by people who you're supposed to trust, people who said they're committed kind of covenantally to love you, to to do life with you, brothers and sisters in Christ, et cetera, that kind of language, um, it's actually that much more painful. Um, it's that much thing. And it actually further embeds people. So, so I would, you know, I, I think that we, um, depending on the nature of the relationship and the level of health and stamina that we have, we can talk about that. Talk about it that way, and say, and call people to um, an account. We can kind of tell our brother or sister that this is a sin. Uh, I, um, that I feel like you're you're being apathetic or cold or overtly hostile towards me, um, and kind of call them into something better. But we can also. <laughs> We can also move ourselves away from that. So I, um, so the sixth commandment is thou shall not kill. And um, I'm, I'm a part of a confessional tradition. So we've, we've got lots of, <laughs> we've got lots of historical documents interpreting all kinds of things for the last hundreds of years. And one of the, one of the ways that I think about the sixth commandment is obviously the um, kind of the, the clear what you should not do, like the negative element of it, like don't kill. But there's also an appreciative element of every command. And so the appreciative element of thou shall not kill is thou thou should preserve life, should value life, should build life. And that 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 doesn't stop with the life. Of course, it includes the life of my neighbor and my enemy, but it also includes my life. And so the the martyrdom of like, I'm going to stay in this church or I'm going to stay here. I'm going to be the black, you know, I'll be faithful. Well, there is a thou shall not kill that applies to us. And so we have to be wise and make sure that we're not setting ourselves on a course of kind of a works-based righteousness as a martyr in these spaces, as people of color persisting in them, when really um, we we need to exit. <laughs> we really need to go. <laughs> so I, I, I do think that at some point we have to have some honest conversations about what is this really about? Am I here? Uh, because I think it's a higher mark of piety. Um, because I'm willing to bear treatment of white people, um, that 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 that's not holiness. <laughs> that's not holiness. Um, and I don't. And, and and frankly, it could even be a form of enable enablement. So if you think about someone who's in a dysfunctional relationship, simply covers it up instead instead of saying the most loving thing that I can do for you, person who's hurting me or abusing me, is hold you fully accountable for your mistreatment of me. So that is that, that that's the feedback that I would give. Um, 
that we, we have to, um, you know, obey the sixth command. Uh, and that includes us <laughs> preserving our own lives our own, <laughs> and our own. Lives. And, and I think, I think what's, what's important as well is to not allow that the killing is not just about you are dead, but that, that you are dulling That's not a word, but that you are dulling yourself. That, so there's a gradual killing of yeah. just a pick, 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 pick. But I will tell you, I will tell you, Dr. Edmondson, it is a rough out. Yes, right. And then you know that that's a root and then that leads to all kinds of health problems and other things that are not good for you. And so uh, bitterness is not the answer. I'm, I'm very clear about this, but I, I will say it's rough out here in these Jesus streets right now. It is. Um, <laughs> it is rough in these Jesus streets. <laughs> it is. It is. Absolutely. <laughs> mm-hmm. So um, I would love to hear you talk some about the role of salience and racial identity and how that impacts the way that you've experienced uh, white churches and then what you know from your expert place um, about how it impacts how people experience uh, these multiracial or predominantly uh, white churches. So you just mean like identity formation in these spaces or? Yeah, yeah. Well, so, cause I think in my mind, Christina, that somebody who's pre-encounter experiences mm-hmm. them very differently than someone who's an immersion. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? There's someone, yeah, because the immersion person went in the Sunday after the George Floyd murders and just turned over everything. Um, but right. you understand what I'm saying? So I, I, mm-hmm. I, think, I guess I'm trying to provide our listeners with some context about how, why some people may experience it, while some people of color and or black people may experience it differently than, um, than another one. Yeah. 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 So, yeah. So really, I think that's a great point, Dr. Stacey. And I think a lot of people haven't, uh, you know, obviously that's all the social science lingo. Um, but I think people who are outside of the academic circles can get the sense of um, kind of kind of layman's terminology of, uh, you know, we're all at different places of understanding, of experience. I think about, you know, the old saint saying, you know, just keep living. You know, in some ways, I think about <laughs> racial identity formation in that way, too. Like, just keep living. Um, and that uh, for some people, their kind of encounter is with, with racism is conflated with this, this toxic expression of Christianity, right? So, so all of that's together. So they're having a racial identity kind of awakening or crisis at the same time they're paralleling with a faith crisis as well in light of that. And I think that makes it even more complicated. So, I mean, I think it's one thing, uh, so when I think about people historically who, discover along the way that they are, you know, usually very early development for for Black children, for example, that they are Black and what that means in this white supremacist society. But it's usually not in church, historically, where they have that experience. (laughs) If anything, they've been socialized that the church is the place that's going to be safe for for them and loving to them. And it's going to, in the Black church in of itself, going to have the spirituals, the music, the sermons, the cadence, the care um, in order to to kind of provide kind of a medication and support in the midst of that crisis of identity development. But when all of that is conflated together, 
you know, where do people turn? So they find themselves in an identity development crisis or, or beginning to see what it means to be Black in light of white supremacy. And at the same time, they also find themselves um, tempted to a faith deconstruction. Um, and I think there are elements of our faith that we do need to constantly be discerning and challenging. But I'm using this deconstruction in the sense of like dismantling our whole faith. You know, Jesus is not white. White people don't own Jesus. <laughs> like, so so I tend to put back on some of my, my beloved colleagues that are like, you know, all of this is white supremacy. I'm like, no, Jesus stands outside of this foolishness. <laughs> so, um, so anyway, I, I think we have to be, yeah, I think we have to be particularly mindful of the additional layer of burden when the trauma, when the encounter, when the catalyst for identity discovery is conflated with religiosity, which could be and should be um, the place of support for us to do the identity journeying work. Um, so that's what I would say initially to that. Mm-hmm. Do you think social justice of God distracts from the gospel? Or is being... Is is identity? Okay, that was the other question. Or is being a black Christian? I know, I know, but I just have to ask the question. It's on the paper. <laughs> um, but that I think that part. Well, right. Well, this is what I will say. I think that this notion that um, tearing apart um, being a black Christian and noting it as divis- divisive is a tool of white supremacy and it's white fragility at its best. And so that for me to fully stand in who I am, you somehow have to pathologize as being defensive. Only the way that it's divisive is because you're uncomfortable with me calling out who I really am. Um, And that's, I I don't feel any less divided from you because I was, united with you before I said it because I had already known it. Right, 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 right. You know, um, no, so I would think that, um, so so, so the, we have to think about what the gospel is. The go- gospel is the power of God unto salvation for all those who will believe. That's scripture uh, talks about it that way. The gospel is not just individualistic right? for a people representing every tribe, nation, and tongue. Uh, what we see in Galatians 3.28, uh, that scripture, which in, in the early church was also a baptismal um, kind of creed that people said, which spoke to the fact that um, in Christ, there's neither male and female, um, Greek nor Jew, um, you know, slave or, 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 or master employer. You know, there's, there's no social hierarchy, basically. That doesn't mean there aren't social distinctions, but there's not this, there's not hierarchy. There's not stratification. So the gospel directly addresses that. This is before there's the field of sociology with an emphasis in race, class, and gender. Scripture is already talking about these categories. Throughout the Old and New Testament, you see these clear examples of, of the gospel at work. Um, and you see the scripture drawing our attention to those demographic variables, the Samaritan woman, right? The Canaanite woman. So we're getting we're able to hone into gender and to race. Why? Because there's something particularly profound that this gospel is going to reach past all that wicked foolishness of social stratification that was set up to bless this particular woman who's a daughter of God. So, I, I, you know, I would say that the gospel itself is is inherently anti-racist. It's, it's you know, it's, it, and and to the extent that the gospel, that what what Jesus Christ has done is freed us from the punishment of sin, which would you know, which is eternal death. It's freed us from 
the power of sin over us, making us the kind of people that want to resist our own sin. Like, oh, Lord, did I just say that? Lord, help me repent, right? It makes us people like that, right? Um, and it frees us also from the presence sin because we're we're now noticing sin in other places and we're resisting against it. And so any gospel that's not resisting personal sin and social sin, I would say is a false gospel. Um, and it denies the full power of the blood of Jesus Christ. Now we can get into our methodologies and we can get into what issues we need to prioritize, all those things. But I think anyone who's claiming that the gospel is not focused on justice and justice is inherently social, it's inherently social. <laughs> so we can call it social. I don't get what name you want to call it. Um, then we are saying something, not just about Christianity, but about the blood of Jesus Christ. And I think that is something, um, yeah, I, w- I would caution people who, in their attempt to want to maintain their social order and privilege, I would caution them to fearfully think about, thinking about statements that question the power of the blood of Jesus. Amen. So, Amen. Amen. So what would Dr. Edmondson tell Christina about from Baltimore about thriving in white spaces? You know, I think Dr. Edmondson would tell Christina, she would probably start with a laugh and she would say, um, you know, you, you have a particular work in calling and that is to be a witness for the gospel wherever the Lord puts you. Um, but you are, you don't, you're not called, you know, Jesus, Jesus has already paid it all. Jesus, Jesus was the great sacrifice, not Christina. And so <laughs> it, it's vitally important, um, that I don't, um, diminish the sacrifice of Christ by trying to be the new re-crucified one, so to speak, in, in the, in, in the, in the quest of this particular, um, this idea of the, the multiracial or multi-ethnic church, um, so yeah, I would I would start with that, um, and then to and then I would Dr. Edmondson would tell Christina to uh, build in healthy boundaries and accountability, and um, to be gracious and to be truthful, um, and that you know th- th- things are for a season. Who knows how long these seasons will last, Dr. Stacy? <laughs> Amen. That's beautiful. That is beautiful. to Dr. Christina for appearing on the podcast today. For more of Dr. Christina Edmondson, be sure to catch her and two other Black women scholars on the wildly popular podcast, Truth's Table. In addition, Dr. Christina is also available to do organization consulting for faith communities and or secular organizations. You can learn more about her work here on christinaedmondson.com, as well as her social media Twitter. This episode was edited by Caroline Bone. Special thanks to our podcast intern, Amanda Gillette. Our music is provided by Jaffa. Being the Dot is sponsored by davisdeliciousdelights.com. davisdeliciousdelights.com, custom-made personalized pastries, cakes, pies, and cookies made with a dash of Southern flair. Visit davisdeliciousdelights.com and use the coupon code BEINGTHEDOT for 20% off orders of $35.99 or more.